everyone. Welcome back to more episodes of The Visitors Might Be Listening, continuing our coverage of Apple TV Plus's For All Mankind. It's me again, your host, Lewis Ryan, and I'm joined by my trusty pal, Mr. Mike Levito. Hello, hello. Mike, how are you? I'm doing okay. I'm very excited to talk about this season. I think, and maybe I'm getting a little ahead of ourselves, I think it's easy. Well, you haven't seen the third season yet, but I think it's safe to say from my perspective at least, that this is the best season of this show. And it really, I think, reaches its potential. And and it's kind of, I feel like, the perfect blend of the alt-history thing, sort of exploring these characters, and also just, just being able to do like sort of like the biggest and craziest things they can possibly think of. Yeah, no, I'm excited to talk about this batch of episodes. This season really solidifies like what the show is and like what it can be. And I think if you were someone who is a bit on the fence during our, our watch along of season one, then I think if you stick around for season two, there are a lot of great things ahead for us. Um, and I think Mike briefly explained why why he thinks that is. It's like when you watch a first season and then when it goes into the second season, they usually have a more solid understanding. And it's interesting to see how the shows could sometime tweak, sometimes tweak things to um, make the shows better, like the the American version of The Office famously went from sort of adapting like the british version where it's more like drab terrible place to work and they turned into more of like a fun sitcom you can see this most clearly in the way they changed the character of michael scott or you know other shows where they do things that that make just a lot of narrative sense like on family matters when they they made urkel a more permanent (laughs) fixture on the show and they gave aunt rachel a restaurant that she ran which is foreshadowing for stuff we're going to talk about later. And then they had uh, <laughs> Laura and Steve Urkel both work as like little waiters at the restaurant. And it was like, oh, there's so much, so much ingenuity. And like you see how like the story engine is like creating something that'll lead to more interesting, more exciting stories. And I think you, you can see that's the case in uh, For All Mankind Season 2. Yeah, definitely. They, they definitely, they, they're in kind of full swing, right? They're in their rhythm they know what works and what doesn't. I feel like they, it's where they really stop trying to be like, you know, what if we're madmen, but of space? And they kind of have a better sense of, I think, what, what, what just works for these characters and what, what the audience will enjoy. Yeah, and I think a lot of that has helped or is most explicit in the way that the show is like sort of done skipping around in time. There was really a lot of that in season one mm-hmm. that, that I think really sort of helped like the gave the impression of like this is like Mad Men. But like Mad Men wasn't just like jumping from like exciting stuff in the 60s to the next. It wasn't going from the Cuban Missile Crisis right into the JFK assassination. Right, right. Right into, you know, uh, the Vietnam War, right into uh, the cancellation of Gilligan's Island. There were <laughs> the moments in between, but uh, there was a lot of skipping around in time in season one. And this season is more solidly placed. Um, so let's let's talk about when when this season takes place, because that, that is important. So Mike, um, tell us about uh, the period of time the show is set in now. Yeah, so the uh, first season, I believe it ends in like 1976, 75. It ends before the election. Yeah, the, the, election. the 1976 presidential election. And so it's interesting because if you actually watch this on Apple Plus, which is the only place you can watch it, um, there's actually gives you the option of watching these kind of like little fake newscasts about events that have happened in between um, the events of season one and the beginning of season two. Um, most of these are recapped in the like the first, I don't know, like 
four-ish minutes of episode one, every little thing, where there's just kind of like montage that I had in my mind was set to, we didn't start the fire, but now that I think about that, that may be the beginning of the third season, where they just kind of, you know, have this flurry of like headlines and, and broadcasts and, and kind of like audio clips of, of events that have happened, some of which, you know, mirrored our real life, and some of which, due to the effects, this divergence point of the Soviets landing on the moon before the United States are, are different. So we mentioned already the biggest difference is that the 1976 presidential election in real life, you know, that was when Jimmy Carter defeated Gerald Ford and Gerald Ford had defeated Ronald Reagan in the Republican primary. In the For All Mankind universe, Ted Kennedy's president, so Jimmy Carter's not running for president, and uh, Ronald Reagan wins a Republican primary uh, with his vice presidential nominee, Richard Schweiker, who was actually his choice for vice president in 1976. And ends up defeating Ted Kennedy in this like razor thin election where there's kind of like a, a Bush v. Gore style controversy in Ohio. And the Supreme Court decides that these unmarked ballots, or not unmarked ballots, these like partially marked ballots do in fact count. And that puts Reagan over the edge. So um, like the beginning of season one, now we, we are now under a Republican president, which introduces some other characters and dynamics that were also present in season one, which we'll get into a bit later, I'm sure. Um, so that's a big one. Another big one is that the uh, U.S. has sent a rover to Mars. They, NASA has landed a rover on Mars, which, of course, we've done in real life, but we didn't do it till 1977. This time they do it, and I think it's like 1977. They, they, they land a rover on Mars, which is you know meant as to be a precursor to a manned mission to Mars eventually. They've also developed the Sea Dragon rocket, which are these giant supply rockets that launch from the sea, and they're able to get these sort of massive amounts of supplies to the people living on Jamestown base. In real life, this was technology that was designed in the 1960s, but a lot of the funding and sort of manpower that would have been put behind it was diverted to the Vietnam War instead. And you also have, you know, sort of like talks about weaponizing spacecraft, space shuttles, you know, finding ways to load bombs on them if need be, which is, you know, kind of happened, but not, not to the extent that it does in this show, of course perhaps somewhat more trivial things um, and we'll end with a very important one because it'll play out the rest of this uh season is uh so the soviet invasion of afghanistan is cut short because they decide they want to invest more uh resources into the space race which is still ongoing so their invasion of afghanistan does not last the very very long time it did in real life there is record inflation in 1980 Roman Polanski is arrested at the Canadian border, which I suppose he was trying to flee after he had been charged with statutory rape. The Miracle on Ice, the, the famous hockey game between the U.S. National Olympic team and the Soviet Olympic team, which the U.S. pulled off this unlikely victory. Instead, they lose 10-3 to to the Soviets, the United States. Very depressing if you're a hockey fan like me. Uh, the Camp David Accords, which Jimmy Carter had negotiated with Egypt and Israel, which kind of gave them a, t a tenuous peace agreement, they fail. So the Middle East is still a flashpoint here. Um, the Iranian hostage crisis, um, instead of, you know, it, the hostage is being released like literally like minutes after Reagan is inaugurated as president. Um, a rescue mission breaks them out after like 90-something days. Um, we have a couple assassination storylines here. John Lennon survives his assa the assassination from Mark David Chapman and is kind of becomes this anti-Reagan pro-peace uh, spokesperson. However, Pope John Paul II dies in this in this uh, version of reality. He actually survived an assassination attempt in real life. Anwar Sadat, president of Egypt, 
He was also killed by an assassin in real life, but in this universe, he survives his assassination attempt. Let's see, what else do we have here? Oh, um, instead of Prince Charles, now King Charles, marrying Princess Diana, uh, he instead marries Camilla, his true love, you know, the first go-around. Three Mile Island, the, that disaster is averted because of uh, innovations that were perfected at NASA. The Solidarity Movement in Communist Poland never takes off. Their uh, leaders are imprisoned. Then you also have the Academy Awards. You know, space is the big topic of the day. So thir- Close Encounters of the Third Kind wins a record 12 Academy Awards. And most importantly, the Panama Canal still belongs to the United States. In real life, um, Jimmy Carter negotiated a treaty with the Panamanian government, which ceded the Panama Canal to Panama. It was supposed to happen in 1999. Um, and it's probably actually the lasting achievement of Jimmy Carter's um, presidency, or certainly one of them, that he was able to get this, what was a very controversial treaty at the time, get it passed on a bipartisan basis through the Senate. But instead, what happens in For All Mankind is Reagan, who is very opposed to ceding the Panama Canal in real life as well, he decides we're going to hold on to it. And that becomes a problem because Panama has this sort of leftist president who is supported by the Soviet Union, and there is now unrest in the region and skirmishes between American military personnel and Panamanians. And then we get to 1983 when the season actually begins. If you were someone who listened to that and followed out of that, great, great job. (laughs) None of it really is important. (laughs) (laughs) It's just fun. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, I I like the little videos. I watched them all because I saw them on Apple TV Plus, and I was like, oh, what is this? And so I watched it. And uh, they're all really well done. They're like little fake news reports mm-hmm. by uh, our news anchors reporting on everything. And I was watching uh, the first one about John Lennon, which was the first one I watched. And then I watched it, and then I got to like two minutes in, and I'm like, you know, with everything that's going on, I'm not sure if it's a great look for Apple to just like release like fake misinformation. <laughs> right, yeah. But they, they actually end each of them with little like text text crawls explaining what actually happened in real life Mm -hmm. so they can avoid you know being charged with (laughs) funding deep fake misinformation to confuse the public and gaslight them especially because they like pretty effectively use in some cases like actual like clips of speeches like politicians give and just put them in a different context that makes it look like they're talking about something else or they they do like the very convincing we talked about it last season like the very convincing kind of like deep fake thing they're able to do which they do with Johnny Carson in this episode very effectively. In the wrong hands could could cause a lot of a lot of chaos. Uh, and speaking of chaos, um, <laughs> we'll take a short break, and then when we come back, we'll dive into the first episodes of this exciting second season. So don't go anywhere, anyone. We'll be right back. The Postwriter is primarily self-funded by its owners, and it costs hundreds of dollars per year to keep the site online. The money we raise and contribute ourselves allows us to pursue stories, projects, and interests that are important to us, while making them completely free to everyone online with minimal advertisements. We do, however, rely on contributions from readers, followers, and listeners like you to stay sustainable and go above and beyond. Every additional dollar we raise helps us do things like launch new podcasts, write more content, pursue larger projects, and engage more with current and future readers. If you're inclined to support us, you can go to thepostwriter.com donate to find out how to support the site and our projects financially. Thank you for your support and for contributing to the work we do. 
All right, everyone, we're back. We're here to talk about the episodes now that we've given away all the setup for the period. We can talk about what the season is uh, actually about story-wise and what's up with our characters. So, Mike, what is going on in the premiere episode, Every Little Thing? So we open much like we open, well, we don't really open the first episode of the first season with this, but we see Margot getting ready for her day. Excuse me. You know, she is now the uh, sort of like head, I forget her exact title, but she's, she's like the director of NASA. Yeah, she's the director. She's, she's, she has the role that, I don't her, actually remember. Her father, Werner von Braun. Right, yes. <laughs> she's now the director of NASA. And, you know, we get kind of some exposition, her talking about, you know, the plans for the day. Um, we find out that Ed is now the head of, like, astronaut training and selection and assignments. Yeah, like his father, Deke. Right, yes. And so that that's what's going on on Earth. We also find out that Ed, his uh, wife, Karen, now owns the outpost, which she's turned into kind of like a tourist attraction. There's lots of, like, space memorabilia there now. And it's, it's, they kind of, like, class it up with, like, plants and stuff. They have also adopted a daughter named Kelly. They, they don't quite say it in this episode, but it's revealed later on that she is, like, a Vietnamese refugee who's separated from her family. And they adopt her. So that's what's going on on Earth. We also see... I, I already said that, but I'm going to say what's going to happen on Earth a few more. We see that Gordo is kind of on, like, what they call the rubber chicken circuit. He's giving speeches to, like, uh, Rotary Clubs and, like, Shriners organizations and just kind of dining out on his stories about space and of course the story that didn't actually happen which is him saving danielle which we all know was danielle sort of purposely breaking her arm so he would have to go back to earth because he was cracking up danielle her husband clayton has committed suicide we knew he was kind of suffering from ptsd from vietnam and then uh tracy she and Gordo are divorced, and Tracy is now, like, this huge celebrity slash model, but still an astronaut, and she got married in Vegas to a guy named Sam Cleveland, who is just a very, like, wealthy business guy who shows up later in the season. On the moon, however, you have um, Molly Cobb still at it, doing her whole adventurous thing. She's looking for lithium deposits on the moon, and you also have Ellen, who is the commander of Jamestown Base. And we, we, we reach them. Ellen is about to uh, end her term as commander of Jamestown Base and return to Earth permanently. She's going to become, like, the deputy director of NASA under Margot. On the moon, they are, um, you know, looking for lithium deposits, other minerals, and they're, they're preparing for this, like, the first time they're going to see sun in, in weeks, if not months. Um, and they've got this whole, like, plan to... Watch it happen and sing Bob Marley while, while while they do it. So I guess let's talk about Ed, who's our main character. Mm -hmm. So like Ed. So Ed's like now in charge. And he's like the guy who's like wearing, you know, the sweater vest combo now in the office. Um, so what do, what do you think of what's going on with Ed? I, it makes sense, right? And I think it's an interesting move for him to become the guy who has to mentor the the younger astronauts we kind of see him take on this role um earlier on uh in season one where he, he he kind of puts himself in charge of kind of um mentoring danny a little bit or trying to make sure you know she's good because he's the commander of the flight he has the kind of sort of like the, the the dad role i think for for a lot of his missions 
but it's also you know it, it sets up this conflict where it's like yeah you know he he's he's fine doing what he's doing but you know he's still he's still a pilot at heart right he still has to go he still has to go out and, and fly and discover things and you know it also puts him in this position where he now has power over these astronauts he now has power over what decisions they make in regards to crews and we're kind of introduced to him or reintroduced to him by this one astronaut named Gary, like confronting him and be, I mean, like, why haven't you put me on a, uh, like a prime crew yet? And his, his answer is just like, I don't like redheads basically. Um, and so it, it kind of, you take his sort of difficult personality and the personality conflicts he has with everybody else at NASA and you put him in this like more powerful role and at least to some interesting places, I think. Yeah, no, I, I agree. The way we, we see Ed, he's in the classic playing golf in his office. Yeah. Which is like a, a cliche that's mm-hmm. used for whatever. I want to know why it's always golf. I think it's probably because like of the association with like business and money. Yeah, it's like the, it's the rich guy leisure sport. You never like walk in and like the boss is playing on his pinball machine <laughs> in his office. It's always like golf. I was gonna say he's hitting like tennis balls against the wall. Yeah, tennis balls, or like he has like the ball and the cup. Right. He's, like, <laughs> trying to get in. The the paddle, just like whacking it in the air. That's Ed in, in the office. Like you were saying, he also has a new development because Karen bought the outpost. Mm-hmm. He and Karen bought the outpost, and they've turned it into, like, a local Italian restaurant that gave me, like, vibes. Because, like, I know I've been to, like, restaurants like that <laughs> <laughs> where it's, like, uh, old, like, everything's made of wood. Mm-hmm. And, like, the spaghetti, like, I don't know if you, like, looked at, like, the spaghetti where it just looks like a bowl of spaghetti with, like, sauce right on the top. It's like, oh Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It, it was it was certainly not uh, it didn't seem like high quality food necessarily. But uh, I think this was such an interesting decision, and this is what I was alluding to before, where I think it's just so smart to have Karen by the outpost because it just like it makes her feel like more part of everything, you know. Mm-hmm. And you know, it also has the side benefit of like Pam's not there anymore. Right. You don't have to worry about Pam rearing her head in this because it would it would make no sense. Everyone realized it was a terrible idea to have this character, so. Karen bought the outpost, so it's great. Um, what did you think of uh, Kelly? Because it, it threw me for a loop, but what did you think of it? I When when she was first introduced and she comes in with the food, I'm like, oh, they're definitely going to like reveal that they've adopted her or something. Like I, I was pretty onto it at first. And, you know, it's just this interesting dynamic. Like, the other thing is that she is... I don't know if this happens in this episode or the next one, but it's like she's looking at going to college and interested in going to college. And she uh, wants to go to the Naval Academy and be an aviator like her father. And that will set up some conflict later on. Um, but it, it's good. I think it gives a good, you know, it's just an extra sort of an extra member in the sort of like Ed and Karen relationship, which I think was like explored pretty deeply in the first season, perhaps, you know, at, at great length. And I feel like it, it, it's just like an extra sort of, you know, it, it's where I think some of the more questionable decisions from season one, like, the whole Shane subplot, it starts to come together again, right? Because a lot of the decisions that the Baldwins make about Kelly are reflective of their them not wanting to repeat, you know, the loss of losing a child. And it kind of, you know, makes the, those, like, drag episodes a little better in hindsight, if not more enjoyable to watch, but, but more justified, I guess. Um, yeah, well, I don't know if it was, like, the lighting in this scene, but, like, when... Kelly first shows up, she's just like, you know, serving their food like a waiter. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I had clocked her as like 25 or 30. Yeah. So when they said like, this is our adopted daughter, I was like, what? Yeah. 
I mean, my guess is the actress probably is like 25 or 30, right? Like that's usually... No, she's 1998. Oh, so she, I mean, she's probably like 23 then. Made um, me think of the rehearsal. Four. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I guess it's nice that they have an adopted daughter. It just it threw me for a loop in this first episode. Mm-hmm. And then when they're at the outpost, they, you know, watch The Tonight Show. Yep. Which you said was like a great recreation of the tonight show and to me it was like the guy that they had doing johnny's voice was just like bad that that's fair but but it looks like he's actually saying those words i guess is my my feeling well i'm sure they just found some clip of johnny talking there were quite a few episodes of the tonight show well yeah (laughs) um Um, i mean yeah it's just the voice really threw me threw me out of it mm -hmm. and there's also just like uh so like tracy is like the big star yeah and I don't know about you, but, like, I have a problem with this, like, in the alternate history of, like, between this and then Close Encounters winning 12 Oscars. Mm -hmm. I just don't know if I buy so much people's fascination with space to this degree. I mean, it, like, makes sense for our characters because they're, like, doing it every day. But, like, for the general public, I'm not so sure how much they would actually care that much, you know? Yeah. Where, I, where I, Tracy would be a lead guest. Or I don't know if she's the lead guest, but, you know, a guest on The Tonight Show. Right, yeah. I think it makes sense. Well, I, I think I think you're not wrong, right? I think, like, I, I think the, yeah, the idea of Close Encounters winning 12 Academy Awards is insane. You know, obviously, I think it makes sense for The Outpost to be, like, a tourist destination. As far as the Tracy thing goes, I think it makes a little bit of sense, if only because, you know, I mean, that's kind of their goal. It's NASA's goal in the first season is to make her and Gordo a celebrity, right? They want like the space couple, right? And then you see that strategy at once kind of come to fruition. Then also maybe there's a little bit of a backlash to it too. And it makes sense. I mean, like Tracy's very attractive woman. I think most people would say, you know, and it makes sense that she could possibly take off as this kind of like personality that begins to eclipse NASA a little bit. So yeah, they do lay it on a little bit thick though. And I guess she does kind of seem like the lead guest because there's no one else on the couches there. I don't know. I, I, I didn't mind it quite as much as you do. And if but it did feel like her whole, like, uh, astronaut photo shoot felt kind of like a... Was it supposed to be like a take on MTV? Like, I couldn't really tell what was going on. I don't know. She's just It's just weird vibes. And it just makes me think of, like, Tracy as, like... she They're making her seem like more of a Playboy playmate than a yeah astronaut. Mm-hmm. Which I think is kind of the point. Right. Because I feel like it's framed negatively. Yeah. Because, like, uh, Karen and Ed seem to react negatively to it, and then they're definitely not on board with her getting engaged. and Well, actually, getting married, mm-hmm. spur of the moment. Um, yeah. Well, because their loyalties clearly still lie with Gordo, I think is what... I'm trying to think if there's, like, an equivalent of, like, maybe not an astronaut, but, like, somebody like that, like, rocketing to that kind of level of fame after they got famous for, like, not being an actor or singer or something. I mean, like, weirdly O.J. Simpson, but I feel like athletes are even, like, still kind of... That does, that shouldn't really count, right? Like, that's still a thing where you're going to become a celebrity if you're a very good one. I yeah, I mean, it's like, they usually don't pick astronauts for their, like, looks. Right, yeah. They usually pick them for, like, their technical abilities <laughs> yes yeah. such as their ability to mine as in the michael bay film armageddon right or you know after you know if they've served in the military before so yeah it's interesting i mean we've only had women astronauts for so long and none of them have risen to this level of fame mm-hmm. 
where they're doing, you know, what's in the box or whatever on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. (laughs) I mean, no astronauts have, really. I mean, the close, like... Yeah, they have nothing to promote, so I don't think they would be on tv anymore they just they just i mean they the closest they get is they get they're like mark kelly and they go into politics and also it's also just like what did tracy even do that like made her famous besides looking good it's like saving molly i i guess so yeah but it's like gordo helped her do that yeah but she was the one who was actually in space oh i see (laughs) that's she's the one people saw but anyways i think the baldwin's owning the outpost was a good decision to make to um make things a little bit more exciting yes and get karen more involved i agree because she was too much of a uh, at a distance i think in season one it was too much too much like Mad Men. wouldn't Mad Men have been more interesting if uh january jones was working at sterling cooper draper price uh would it have yeah i guess it would have that that would have yeah i can't say it wouldn't have been <laughs> what is her name why why do i forget her sally name too? sally no, draper Sally's is their daughter. daughter birdie is the Birdie's nickname. Her nickname it's not betty 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 is draper betty, yeah oh That's, boy that felt wrong i don't know we're Man. getting old me too <laughs> anyways i know everyone was saying that Betty was like the real main character and the funnest part of the show, but it's like <laughs> hard to remember her name sometimes. Yeah. So yeah, and then Margot's on Earth. She's dealing with the new sort of army integrate military integrated NASA. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a general character named Nelson. Yep. <laughs> and he like what does margo make doesn't margo like give him like wings or cookies or something she gives him tickets to the army air force football game oh yeah he likes football yeah in exchange for like they're trying to like it seems like a big part of his role is like they're coordinating like when nasa gets to use the air force bases and when the air force gets to use the air force bases and also like you know which when do they get to put bombs on spaceships basically (laughs) yeah and uh you know makes sense feels very real definitely i definitely buy this guy as like a not a general character but a character who happens to be a general he's definitely not not just like an antagonist to margo right which i feel like another show could have just done where he's just like against everything where he just like takes the tickets from margo and he just like spits on them and throws it back (laughs) in her and it's like i will not betray my country to you the nerdy scientist folk yeah he throws margo in a locker it is. I feel like it's like a it's like a pretty realistic working relationship, right? Where it's like they don't have a lot in common, but they're working at the same place, and their interests, unfortunately, are kind of just uh, you know, they're they're the opposite sometimes, right? Uh, what's in his best interest is not always in her best interest, and they kind of have to try and maintain a relationship, a close working relationship, while also trying to kind of like get one over on each other but it's not that confrontational right they're they're friendly they seem to like each other but like they are just by their job description kind of like naturally opposed on certain things yeah so that's what's going on on earth and then on the moon we get a really exciting set piece with the um solar rays which is like when we finally introduce our season antagonist which is the sun (laughs) yes radiation in general (laughs) yeah cosmic radiation but this isn't the kind that gives you superpowers no um, it's the kind yeah. that gives you cancer. 
Take that, Stan Lee, you <laughs> idiot. Yeah, so apparently there's like a giant solar flare, right? That's mm-hmm. like emanating and it's spreading through the galaxy, first through Earth and then the moon. And uh, that causes big problems. I was wondering, Mike, do you happen to know, was this based on an actual solar event that occurred in this time period? Because I was wondering, because I know I've been wrong before about things happening in this show that had absolutely no bearing in reality that turns out to have actually happened so i was wondering if maybe this was inspired by something some sort of like incident that has its own page on wikipedia like (laughs) that i I might be searching right now not really there there was a a pretty intense solar storm a geomagnetic storm in march of 1989 so like six years or so after this episode supposed to a couple months before batman yes that's true was supposed to take place and it actually caused a blackout in Quebec in Canada and and it it, uh, it impacted some operations of the Australian army and UN peacekeeping forces um, but it was not this sort of like nationwide blackout that is depicted in the show where the there there are a couple of points of tension with this storm right one is that like once it gets to the moon any astronaut who's exposed to this much radiation is going to be in like deep deep trouble right there's going to be some adverse um, affect most likely cancer, possibly other stuff. And the other thing is that's going to cause a blackout basically in the United States, which means that the United States will then lose its surveillance capabilities on the Soviet Union, which means they won't know if the Soviet Union decides whether or not they want to use this opportunity to launch a nuclear strike. And the same thing could happen in the Soviet Union as well. If they lose power, they might have the same thing. So we go to DEFCON 3. Like Kanye West. Yes. Well, he went DEFCON the United States goes DEFCON, which, you know, causes this, it, it's sort of like the first big flare up between, you know, the military capability of NASA versus the civilian capability and our first tease towards nuclear war, that tensions between the U S and Russia are very high and their respective space programs have a key role to play in it. Yeah. It's, it's very exciting, but the real danger is for the people that are stuck on the moon, yes. believe it or not. Because they are will be unprotected by the radiation because there is no atmosphere on the moon. Mm-hmm. So they need to get get the heck out of there and find shelter. You know, because they're just standing around singing that song from uh, Shark Tale. Um, <laughs> three birds or three little birds. Is that the name of the song? It is. Everyone thinks it's called Don't Worry About a Thing or whatever, but it's called Three Little Birds. Because that's what the, the three little birds tell Bob Marley. To not worry about a thing because every little thing's going to be all right. All right. And who says we're not an educational podcast? But yeah, the people on the moon. So we've got Ellen's Ellen's inside. You know, she's doing the smart thing, staying inside, Skyping with Larry. Right, yeah. And uh, everyone else is out there singing the Bob Marley song, except for, and then they realize they got to go, so they all head back inside to get away from the radiation, except for everyone's favorite character, Molly Cobb, and everyone's other favorite character, Wubbo. Yes, Wubbo, the, the Dutch astronaut. I do wonder what they call astronauts in Dutch. Smurfs. <laughs> yes. The Amsternaut, I don't know. Yes, that causes issue for them because they're kind of like further afield. They're not with the rest of the group, sort of joining hands in this weird hands across America thing they're doing. Hands across the moon, I guess. And Molly is on like the side of the mountain, um, and she's like, oh, there's a lava tube at the base. I'll just hide in there and it, the radiation won't harm me. But she's waiting for Wubbo. And she sort of like sets her telescope up and finds that his rover has crashed. 
and she makes this realization kind of like right as the storm is hitting and rather than go rather than save herself and stay in the lava tube she decides to take off her sort of like solar flare indicator thing that shows how much radiation she would absorb she throws in the lava tube and she runs out to save him um, which means not only is he exposed to like this lethal dose of radiation but so is she i had a thought when i was rewatching this that i think if any character if you and i were any character on the show like a re- realistically if you and i were an astronaut we'd probably be like wubbo <laughs> we get into a horrible accident and then be uh exposed to uh hundreds of thousands of whatever rotogens of radiation and become stricken with cancer <laughs> I, so. yeah that just just based on how my luck tends to play out you may be right and uh yep molly molly does the noble thing and mm-hmm. goes to save him but it's it's too late molly has also been exposed to radiation so they they've lived but for how long i would just point out that i think the scene where it's like they explain what would happen if the astronauts are exposed to that much radiation is really well done because you get Margot's narration her conversation with tom Payne, who's returns as like the the white house liaison to nasa it, it's shown as like molly's making the decision to go out and save wubbo um, and like taking off her right you know radiation watch or whatever it is it's just a really well sort of like they build up the tension well and deliver this kind of necessary exposition in like a very tense and thrilling way all right episode two which is titled the bleeding edge mm-hmm. and um yep so i guess we'll just start with molly and wubbo mm-hmm. so yeah wubbo is diagnosed uh with cancer from his doctor and uh you know, presumably he only has a year or two left to live. So obviously he does the rational thing and leaves NASA and decides to start using his um, connections in uh, with the Dutch and Amsterdam to get into the drug trade and start right. cooking meth yes. in order to provide for his family. And this is when the show takes a really drastic <laughs> turn and becomes really quite good and exciting. No, obviously none of that happens. Wubbo, Wubbo does decide to leave NASA, though, and Molly is, of course, really, really upset. And um, Molly is angry about this, obviously, for very understandable reasons. She's obviously externalizing a lot of her inner turmoil mm-hmm. about, like, doing the quote-unquote right thing. I don't know. It's quite complicated and interesting. And um, it's a, it's an interesting decision by the writers to take a character that I, I don't know about everyone, but, like, I certainly like Molly a whole lot, um, and give her, you know, cancer. Give her sort of a death sentence, if you will. Obviously, they say it might be a, a long time, but, you know, it's it's an interesting decision to go with the character. What did, what did you think, Mike? Yeah, it is, and, and, and the key point is that she hasn't really told anybody about what actually happened, right? She told Ellen that she hid in the tube and got Wubbo afterwards, um... Because she knows that, you know, if she tells anybody what actually happened, she's never going to go to space again. Um, because Wubbo is certainly never going to go to space again, partly because he doesn't want to, and also because they actually make that comment um, on the ride down. This will probably be his last time in space, because it would just be too dangerous for him to go back up. Ed eventually kind of deduces that she's that she was exposed, um, and that she's going to probably lie to the NASA flight surgeon about it. If you do this poorly, it could be kind of emotionally manipulative. But I feel like the big theme that they really hammer home this season and do well, they touch on it in the first season, but they they really go for it this season, is just this idea of how, how much are you willing to risk for this like life of adventure, right? How important is it to you? And what are you willing to do to kind of like let, you know, 
fulfill that meaning that you feel that you feel in your life for it right um, what are you willing to sacrifice what are you willing to leave behind to do that and you know we see as the season goes on we see ed and gordo grapple with that but then we also see of course molly grapple with it as well you know and it gets a little more complicated as, as the series goes on so yeah and, and i feel like it's pretty consistent with her kind of you know daredevil demeanor daredevil personality that now all but now all of a sudden she's kind of paying the price for it right she's able to get away with the risks she takes in season one but now they, they've kind of cut, caught up to her and she has to, to to grapple with it like a true daredevil she will lose her sight that's that's true and start yes. listening to evanescence yes <laughs> uh tracy returns to mm-hmm. visit danny yes danny who's the eldest steven's child he has just finished i think it's supposed to be like his first semester at annapolis the naval academy of course and comes home uh to to feast with his father gordo his mother tracy who's you know seeing gordo for the first time before since she's gotten married to sam cleveland and then his son um the much less impressive (laughs) jimmy stevens and uh mike has a personal vendetta against this actor that's why he's saying no i i I have nothing against the actor but once you watch season three you'll understand my feelings about oh okay yes i see yeah i see Mm -hmm. he's gonna blow up the moon isn't he (laughs) (laughs) you know it yeah so tracy returns she and gordo are actually pretty amicable Mm -hmm. about everything tracy getting married all spontaneously gordo sort of grins and bears it yeah he makes some toast (laughs) <laughs> and uh yep he doesn't blow it but uh, obviously something's eating away at him mm-hmm. and it feels like things are eating away at him danielle who comes back in this episode and ed too they sort of reunite at the outpost talking about like if they you know made the right decision or whatnot you know they sort of return to everything and wonder you know if everything they've done has been the best thing for history legacy whatever danielle um obviously it's assumed that she was with clayton for the last 10 years and he was very difficult dealing Mm -hmm. with his ptsd and then he presumably passed away i don't think they ever specify whether it was like from illness an accident or it was like self-inflicted but um yeah so danny's just sort of like reconnecting with herself now now that she's living life with uh without clayton anymore to take care of yes and i believe it's at so she gordo and ed meet together at the outpost and is it there that she says she wants to go up to space or that ed wants her to go back up to space yeah she wants to go back up to space to you know find herself or whatever whatever these people do to <laughs> talk themselves into going into space it's not to find money or anything it's right, always yeah. like some highfalutin idea about progress and personal fulfillment and yeah imagine if danny had shown up and been like pulls out a treasure map and been like there's gold on the moon (laughs) and uh, then they're like we got to get it before the soviets do or the other americans find out about it that would have been exciting space indiana jones i'd be all for it well get ready next summer (laughs) indy five this 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 is kind of the point where like the gauntlet gets thrown down for our characters because it's really kind of the story of ed danny and gordo that like kind of plays through to the end of this season is like their return to space 
And yeah, we just sort of follow them and they go on three sort of branching paths that all pay off by the end of the season. So it's interesting to, you know, watch the the seeds germinate here. Yeah, I would agree. It definitely sets the stage. Um, and I guess it, 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 for not only like their, their diverging paths and kind of like the, the adventures they have, if you will, but also the, um, some of the best character work I think the show, show does in general. Yeah, and it's it's funny how uh, Gordo is like Shanghai by Ed into returning to space. Yes, yeah, we get the scene after the sort of homecoming for Danny. Gordo is very broken up about it, especially because his, his two sons they go off to to hang out with Kelly, uh, Kelly Baldwin, and then also their other friends, presumably from high school or whatever. And he just gets sort of like rip roaring drunk, um, singing "Eye in the Sky" at, at the outpost, and Ed and he kind of have this heart to heart. And it decides the way that he's gonna he's gonna get Gordo clean, get him back on track, is to make him an astronaut again. To force someone to launch themselves into space <laughs> yes. and perform tasks and duties on the moon. Yes, when against the la- their wishes. Yes, after having had a mental breakdown on the moon, you know, ten years prior. Um, and Gordo is not happy about this, right? <laughs> <laughs> for for whatever reason. Yeah. <laughs> He's not a big fan. He shows up to the meeting and he's like, Ed, I, I can't do this. And Ed's like, I'm your boss. Too bad. You're going to do it. So such a stunning critique of late stage capitalism. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The, the machinations of a government agency that is essentially nonprofit. Um, Can you imagine calling up Ed Baldwin and being like, it's Columbus Day. It's like, I don't care. You got to come in. <laughs> yeah. Moon doesn't take any days off. Neither do you. <laughs> Another thing that gets introduced in this episode is um, the uh, the handshake in space with yes. the Soviets, mm-hmm. where they're like, act of peace, but it's also like brinksmanship. Yeah. Where it's like, oh, we'll offer to, you know, do the handshake in space with the Soviets as, you know, a gesture of peace. And then they're like, are you sure that's the best idea? And it's like, well, the Soviets will never go for it. Kind of reoccurs throughout the rest of the season. This, um, this brinksmanship around this uh, show of peace is really uh, funny and interesting. Yes, we get for the first time, we have to see the United States and the USSR collaborate on something as opposed to compete on something, and yet they still manage to turn it into a competition nonetheless. The other, I'm trying to think of other stuff that happened. So, I mean, there's like tidbits of like the the Larry and Ellen storyline where, you know, Ellen comes home and and her her big thing is, is, is pushing NASA to get to Mars, right? They realize they have to make some budget cuts. And Ellen is, is very, very insistent that they don't take money away from the Mars Project. We also find out that uh, Larry has had this this sort of, like, relationship with, with this man who's been basically living at, or staying frequently, I guess, at he and Ellen's house. Um, so they're still keeping up the act, but apparently very confident and sort of about the, the way they're keeping up their sort of, like, sham marriage for appearances. We find out Larry works for Boeing now, not for NASA anymore. And we also get, in name only, the appearance, the reappearance of Aleda um, during the meeting about the budget cuts. Uh, Margot gets a note from her secretary that says that she has a call from Alita Rosales. This disturbs Margot greatly because last we saw, Alita was um, asking Margot if she could live with her after her father got deported back to Mexico, and Margot says no and so Alita just kind of runs away and we don't know what happens to her and this this sets up sort of the whole rediscovery of Alita storyline yeah Alita Alita returns yes um, with, she uh, strikes back yeah 
She brings Margo a copy of the treasure treasure map that <laughs> Danny had showing where there's gold on the moon. And then Margo's like, we got to get that gold and give it to Werner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, so that that is episode two in a nutshell. I would say that these um, first two episodes, even though they're quite good, I would say, you know, we hyped up this season a lot at the top of this episode. They are kind of more of the uh, table setting for the rest of this season. It reminded me a bit of, like, The Wire. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, at a certain point, you know, The Wire, the first, ep- the first episode of, like, every season of The Wire is usually, like, just a lot of setup where, you, like, basically nothing happens in the plot. It's just showing, like, everything. And that, that reminded me a bit of, like, what's going on here. Even though it's very exciting, like we said, with the solar flare stuff in the first episode, there's definitely some drama and conflict going on. It's definitely not... There, there are more storytelling heights to come in this season as it moves along. Yeah, I would agree. It's it's not not a lot of not a lot of space action in these first two episodes outside of the whole solar flare thing, um, but it, it sets in motion a lot of the stuff that that I think makes the season great. Yeah, so it's definitely uh, you know worth your time, and we'll be back next week to talk about, or you know, not next week. Let's not pigeonhole us. We'll be back sometime within <laughs> the next ten years to talk about the next two episodes of this season. Until then, if you want to complain about our release schedule, uh, please get in touch with us at contact at thepostwriter.com. That is an email address. You please write us. Uh, write everything down on a cloth parchment with a feather-tipped pen from your inkwell and then transpose it onto your computer and send it to that email address to let us know your thoughts on For All Mankind, what Mike and I should be wearing when we record these podcasts, what new elements should be added to the periodic table of elements which condiments go best on your household pet please let us know we are dying to hear from anybody about anything the lone vacuum of our email inbox is (laughs) frightening to behold even more frightening than that vast emptiness of space which is getting larger and larger every day um yeah or you know follow us on twitter uh, yeah, I agree. Please do all that. And, and Mike's on Twitter too, so you can bother him at, at, at M Levito. At, at M Levito. You can find my writing on thepostwriter.com and on thewriting.com as well. Yeah, so go go read Mike's Mike's articles about politics or whatever. And um, <laughs> I, I've written some articles about uh, fictional rabbits and comic books on the Postwriter. So check those out. And please also subscribe to the Pony Express which is another podcast that Micah and I are on quite frequently where we talk about all the latest happenings in movies, TV, pop culture. And I can't imagine if you're listening to this that you haven't heard of the Pony Express podcast. But if you are, please give that a follow. So I think that covers it for now. Um, Mike and I are going to go hibernate for a week (laughs) and we will emerge, you know, renewed, refreshed with a pouch full of salmon and we will record the next episode but until then um see you later everybody Hi, I'm Lars Emerson. And I'm Mike Levito. And we're the hosts of the Post Writers Podcast, Watching Mates. It's our podcast in which we explore the trends in film under each post-war presidency and reflect on how presidents and the zeitgeist of the era shaped the movies of their time. So be sure to check it out wherever podcasts are found or on thepostwriter.com.